4, uh, 10 through 23. Uh, but where things are coming to a close with Philippians, it has been an encouraging and challenging book to work through. I've loved it because in many ways, um, in, uh, we of course as a church have a lot of things to continue to be working on, but there's few books that feel like they could be as written to us as Philippians does. It, it feel, I feel a lot of kinship with the people of Philippi, uh, minus perhaps the amount of hardship that they are experiencing, and the actual persecution they're experiencing. We do not have that to the same degree but in many ways, Paul is coming alongside the church of Philippi, and he is encouraging them. He's showing his love for them, his excitement for them, and he's just saying, keep, keep going, keep going. Uh, and as we kind of move towards uh, closing this, this book up, or this letter up, I'm just, I'm curious for you, have there been moments in Philippians that have really stood out to you? Has there been any uh, standout moments or standout passages that you feel like, man, God has just was really encouraging me. And this is an opportunity for you to share uh, with us just briefly, like what was that passage or what was that theme? What's something that God has been working and stirring in you as we've been going through Philippians together? Is there anybody that has anything that they want to share? I know I didn't prompt you with this, so uh, I could get crickets, hopefully not. But has there been anything in Philippians that has been Challenging, encouraging, stirring to you. Awesome. That's so great. Anybody else? Yeah, that Christ him in Philippians 2 is kind of the, the crux of and the centerpiece for the letter to the Philippians. It's amazing to get to see Christ's example of humility and our call to follow him in total obedience. Absolutely. Anybody else? So good. It's great. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 
yeah. Yeah. I think we should just skip that. <laughs> mhm. Mm <laughs> awesome. Yeah. That's so good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> yeah. It's good. Yeah. Yes. And it's so good. It's so good for us to be reminded because sometimes we read this and that you've always been great with this of of like, okay, so now what? Or like how, let's apply this to our lives. But oftentimes we can be in such a hurry that we just, we read the information like, oh, cool information. But not ask the question like, but now what does that mean to me? Or how, how should I live now in response to this? And I think you're right. The Philippians has in many ways challenged a lot of our attitudes. And exp I think has been like a shining light in some areas that maybe we've like just glossed over. And... You're not alone in the critic piece. If you've grown up in the church, you've been trained to be a critic. And if we're not careful, it can chip away at the very unity in which Jesus has bought for his church. Uh, and so I think that's so good and uh, for us to be reminded of. That's a great share. Any other last thoughts? Thank you guys for, for, for sharing some of these. I know... Uh, this has, I, I sprung it on you, but I, it would be a great exercise for you this week. Go back through Philippians. Now that we've taught through it, read it once again, just in one sitting. Don't rush through it. It doesn't take long. It's four chapters. Read through it once again, asking the question, God, through your spirit, would you, are there things that you want to highlight so that we don't just skip this and move to the next thing? God, what do you want to highlight to me? What, what do you want to bring out? What do you want to make sure I don't forget and we could generically say, like, oh, everything. It's like, but let's slow down. What is something specifically, perhaps, that God is wanting to highlight for you? Uh, this morning, we are finishing, and, and, and really, the, the passage that we're talking about, it's, it's an interesting one. It could be really simple or relatively complex. We're going to go the simple route this morning, um, and, and we're really going to look at Paul continuing to give thanks. I love at the beginning of this letter, Paul starts by expressing thanks and gratitude to the Philippian church. And that's so important for us to see, especially if you're like me, who sometimes you read certain things from Paul and you're like, that just feels a little abrasive. That just feels like you're not necessarily being 
all that kind. Philippians is a fantastic book to read through to help combat that because you see all of this affection, all of this love, all of this foreness poured out on the church. And so we're going to get to see him continue to be thankful. We're going to get to hear him uh, talk about being content, uh, which is obviously something that we need to spend some time on. Uh, And then we're also just going to see some of his encouragement, a a really brief theology of Christian giving, uh, of what what that looks like. And so um, we are going to dive right in, so I'm going to read the passage for us, and then we're going to scoot our way through this. So if you'd open up to Philippians 4, verses 10 through the end, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have received your concern for me. You... You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound in any and every situation or circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble, and you... Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice, acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. All right. Well, let's start at the top. This, this first line sometimes throws, especially Westerners, for a loop. We've got to remember that Paul is speaking into a context that's 2,000 years old. Uh, he's writing to a group of people who are far off, and it could sound a little bit like passive-aggressive in some ways. If you're to look at this, it almost feels as though he's like, yeah, I noticed that you stopped giving, but I was very grateful that finally, after a long period of time, you started giving again. And it's interesting because a lot of commentators make a big deal of this. Really what, what's going on here is that Paul is highlighting, and we see this with the rest of the text of this passage, that Paul has had a long history with the church in Philippi. He went to Philippi first on his second missionary journey, and he went there and he preached the gospel, and the church was born. And from that moment, the church in Philippi said, we want to be linked to you, Paul. We want to be connected. We want to be partners. Remember, Eric taught an amazing message all the way back about the fellowship, the koinonia, the partnership. Here at the end of the letter, Paul isn't just thanking them for their most recent gift. He's rejoicing and being grateful for their many, many years of partnership together. And what is true of what we can even see here is that there was a gap in, their, in, the, in the church's support of Paul. Not because anything bad had happened. We don't know what happened. Either, you know, the courier got lost or maybe funds ran out. But what Paul's saying here is he's highlighting how much his 
heart and soul was grateful once again to receive from them, to know that they were indeed concerned for him. And so Paul is rejoicing as he's closing this letter. He's rejoicing in this long-term partnership. I, as a church family, this is something that we want to continue to to make sure that we hound upon, but we live in a world that is so fast-paced, and we're so quick to cancel. We're so quick to get rid of things. What does it look like for you and I to rejoice in long-term partnerships, whether that's friendships that have lasted for a long time? I know one that just blesses my heart all the time is the guy who led my dad to the Lord when he was 18. 18? Uh, Him and Gary Barber are still like best friends, they are very distant as far as like, well, very means like he lives in Bakersfield, live, leads a church up there. They don't get to see each other all of the time. But when they come together, you guys, I want, I both like want a seat to watch, but I also sometimes like, almost like gag, like you, you guys are just too, the love for one another is so strong. It's beautiful. There's like, you can feel the rejoicing over the long-term partnership. But I don't know how many of us are, we can't be long-term partners with like everybody. Lindsay, you talked about, we have limits. I can't solve all the world's problems. And sometimes if you try and be long-term partners with everybody, you don't be a long-term partner with anybody. And so whether that's a friendship or specifically, he's talking about these, this church familial relationship, brothers and sisters who have partnered together, who are committed to one another. Here we get to see the fruit of that. We don't know exactly how long it could have been, 10 years, 15 years, 20 years. But there's a long-term partnership. They weren't always able to be right next to each other. But they rejoice in what God is doing in one another. Neither one is the master over the other, but they are partners. They are genuine koinonia partnership and partakers of the gospel together. And I want to make sure as we see this chapter or this book come to a close, Paul is rejoicing over long-term partnership. And I just want that to just stir us, church, to keep going. Build for the long-term, not for the sprint. Build for the long-term. Build for the ongoing. But in this passage, Paul not just, you know, shares about the things in that he rejoices in the long-term partnership. He also shares about his personal situation. And, and he says, not that I'm speaking of being in need. I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound in every circumstance. I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. And the most out-of-context quoted verse in all of Scripture or one of them I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Amen. I, uh, I do appreciate hearing Tim Tebow mention this verse regularly and others. I'm not blowing him up necessarily. But this is a verse that is used out of context quite frequently. When people use this verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. What's the context maybe when you've heard this? Any of you guys? How have you heard this used before? Sports, like in what sense, though? Yeah, 
Yeah, generally physical test. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because you're a Christian, that means you will succeed in actually every single thing you try. <laughs> I don't generally hear this verse quoted by anyone who is just lost. You guys? I, I, I haven't. And I, we joke around about this because it's actually important for us to understand. It's a good reminder for us. If we take verses out of context, meaning I grab a verse without understanding the surrounding verses around it, we can actually make God in the Bible say things that it doesn't actually say. Because really bad theologies can derive from this. Because if I say I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, and I believe that to mean that I will succeed in whatever I try, then when I fail, what's the matter? Either God doesn't like me, or I don't have enough faith, or I'm doing something against God's will. And nowhere in Scripture is that supported. And of course, contextually, that's not what's being highlighted here at all. If you were to look contextually, when, when Paul's talking about, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, what, what do we think, what is he talking about? What do you think? Being content. He, <laughs> I can quote Jimmy Gass. This is, this is a good one. Well, there's children in here. I, uh, but I can survive the hard things. I can survive when life goes down the tube. I can survive when life doesn't go the way I want it to go. But why? Why can we survive? Being content in all circumstances is something that's very challenging for us in our world, right? It's very, very challenging. Being content can't, it's actually very much connected to anxiety as well, and we'll get there in just a second. But there's a key thing that Paul says in here. Did, did he say that he magically became content? He learned it. We don't like to learn things, friends. We just want to hit the microwave button, or if we're getting a little healthier, maybe we'll go to the air fryer button, and we want to make it faster and just as good. But even Paul, and we learned this weeks ago, that he, he admits he's not perfect. He's still on a journey and growing in the likeness of Jesus, just like we are. But he had to learn to be content. And he uses the, this, this imagery in when he was hungry, he needed to learn to be content. And then when he had plenty, he needed to be content. But one of the things that you can see is that there wasn't like a baseline. It wasn't like Paul lived a life that was perfectly comfortable all the time. He had to learn what it meant to be content in plenty or in little. He says, I had learned the secret. You're like, ooh, what's the secret? And I think there's two passages from Philippians for us to look at, to go back to that Paul has in mind as he's talking about being content in all circumstances. It says back in Philippians 3, 7 through 11, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. 
Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. The first secret that Paul has learned is that he has come to know that nothing compares to knowing Jesus. There is an awe, there is an adoration, there is a woe factor with him being united together with Christ. For Paul, being content must center around the reality that I have been made one with Jesus. I have been brought into a relationship with him through the shed blood of Jesus on the cross, that way that my sins might be forgiven. And that the righteousness which Jesus earned is now applied to me through Jesus and Jesus alone. For Paul, there's no contentment apart from Jesus. And then in Philippians 4, like we looked at last week, he continues to give us the practicals of how do we remain content. He says, rejoice in verse 4 in the Lord always. Again, I say, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be known to God. And what will happen? And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Again, it's, that's another verse, friends, that we quote all the time, and it is a fantastic verse. But we expect it to be magic like pixie dust. This whole book is written in a way that talks about who God is, what God is doing, what he will do, and our participation. That koinonia, it's not just partnership with each other. It's also partnership with who? With God. The secret. Know that God is at hand. Know that the Lord is near. He's been made near because of Jesus. And now because of Jesus, he promises after he rose from the grave that I will never leave you. I will be with you, low to the very end of the age. And he gave us the Holy Spirit who now dwells within you and I. The Lord is at hand. Therefore, do not be anxious. That's not doggone it, stop worrying. It's take those thoughts, those fears, and bring them to the feet of Jesus. And then on the proactive side, to help with contentment, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is anything excellent, and if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Also a great verse, but we don't like the next one. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. It's not just hear it and magically, it's there. This is about being sons and daughters who are growing day by day, learning day by day, putting these things into practice. It's not like, okay, great, whatever's true, whatever's noble, whatever's honor, I'm going to think about those things, and I just have to say that verse forever and ever and ever, and I will think about those things. No, no. 
It's what does it look like for you to begin to day by day grow and rejoicing in the truth, rejoicing in the honorable, rejoicing in what's pure, rejoicing in what's beautiful. And this is something we grow in. <laughs> Kids, you, you guys are in here. How many of you guys, I was going to say, love your parents, raise your hand, but if somebody doesn't love their parents, I mean, that's, that's up to you. Do you always do what they ask you, like always? <laughs> but do you still love them? Are you growing a little bit each day to listen, to obey? Eh. But how about this? The reality is some days yes and some days no. I know that some of us, and it's part of it because I'm a kid at heart, there are days when I want to grow, but I want to be honest with you, there are days when I don't. There are days when I'm mad, like I'm frustrated, I'm stressed, I feel like I know the right thing to do, but I don't do it. And I'm 39 turning 40 this year. Am I willing in that moment where I'm like, life is hard, or when those curveballs come, am I willing to take a deep breath and listen to the things that Paul has challenged us on? Will we remember, Jesus is with me. God, I'm really frustrated about this thing. God, I don't know what's going to happen here. God, I'm really nervous, or God, I'm really anxious. But instead, my tendency has sometimes is to maybe ball up my fist, grip my teeth, and just try and make my way through it. But Paul, in his closing, he's so amazing at talking about how necessary the partnership was for him to continue moving on, partnership with the Lord and partnership with one another. The secret for Paul is knowing Jesus and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding. There is a group of philosophers or Stoics who believed that being content was this, um, basically, how, how, how they pursued contentment was basically disassociation. It was, the way we can be content in life is if we stop feeling things. As if we stop feeling the good and the bad. It was not, it was my hope, if I ever had a hope of being content, it had to mean that I had to remove both the extreme high and the extreme low. And so what they would do is they would disconnect themselves from reality and say, not my problem, not my issue. And they would ascend mentally. And to this day in the world, there is this ascent as well. It's called tolerance. Where we just, our job is just to continue to make sure that everybody knows it's okay to do whatever they want to do. But this idea of being content from Paul, it is not 
grounded in removing yourself from the world. It's not grounded in removing yourself from feelings. Look at this letter. It's filled with so much emotion from Paul, both high and low. And yet he's learned how to be content in everything because his source of contentment rests solely upon Jesus and the work that he has done. The other thing I love in this passage is his contentment does not mean that he doesn't have needs. Being content and having needs are not competing with one another. Paul talks about how he had needs and is so grateful that they met those needs. Being content doesn't mean we have it all together. Being content doesn't mean that you know what, I love exactly where I'm at in work or I love exactly our living situation. It doesn't necessarily mean that you love everything about your life. Being content means that we have placed our faith firmly and fully in Jesus Christ and that whether I live or whether I die, my life is hidden with Christ on high and I can have a future hope that he just as he beat death, I too will raise to the newness of life. Contentment is a serious issue for many in our church and our, not in, in, in many in our culture. The message coming from our world is you will be so much more fulfilled in life. You will be so much happier in life if you just fill in the blank. What will you be more, how will life be more content for you according to our world if you just what? If you just what? If you just be yourself. If you just live your truth. Bigger house. If you just live the life just for you. If you just try your best, you'll be content. What about things? Are, does this world try and tell us if you have certain things, you'll be happier? more content, huh? Bigger TV. A better wife. <laughs> yes, this is what our world does tell us, man. You're right. That is actually one of the most important things that this, the grass is greener on the other side. <laughs> the White House. Your own White House, yeah. I will be satisfied then. I will be satisfied if, if I get that car. I will be satisfied if I get that skin for that video game. I will be satisfied if I score that goal. I will be content in life if I get that promotion. I will be content in life if my kids do this. I will be content in life if I get that spouse. I will be get content in life if I get rid of that spouse. I will be content in life. Fill in the blank. Yes, lose more weight. There are all of these things, and a lot of those things aren't bad, friends. I'm not, I'm not trying to sit here and condemn one another. But if our contentment doesn't solely rest on Jesus, what will be produced in us? Anxiety. Because you're going to get that house. And you're going to be like, oh. now what about this? You're going to get that spouse or that boyfriend or that girlfriend. And you're not going to be content. You will not be satisfied because our hearts are truly restless until they find their rest in Jesus. Paul's invitation and Paul's secret to contentment is cherishing, loving, adoring, remembering 
Jesus. As a church and as friends and family, we've got to encourage and challenge one another in these spaces. It is not a once and done thing. The rest of the section, it, it, this goes through Paul giving a brief, really brief Christian theology of giving. And I'm, I'll summarize it for in this way. Paul's really grateful for the giving. Giving comes, and it's not just financial. It's personal, and it is financial. Meaning, when Paul's talking about churches generously giving towards one another, it doesn't just mean writing a check. It also involves your person. It involves your presence. One of the things that was so encouraging to Paul wasn't just the funds that came, but who that came. Epaphroditus was sent, and it was like this nourishment to Paul's soul. Again, we're talking about Paul who's content and also, right, to live as Christ and to die as gain. He's, he's okay with those outcomes, but my goodness, what a blessing it was for him to receive from a generous church who was partners with him not just on a whim, but on purpose. Christian giving is personal in the sense that it involves our person, not just our money, but it does involve our finances. And it can remind and be a part of that for a long period of time. Again, the church in Philippi, from very on in their existence, they faithfully gave and contributed towards Paul. They were excited about this ministry, and Paul helped them know that this money wasn't just going for him, and this is really the crux kind of of the theology of giving here, is that the money that's given to God's people are given for the purpose of God doing kingdom work. Paul never has a problem asking for funds because he knows that those funds are going towards supporting and doing kingdom ministry outside, and what Paul is trying to tell them is, yes, that's beautiful that you gave to me, but I want you to know that there is actually credit coming to you by your generosity because of your willing gifts. The ministry that's been done through, by God's grace through me is also accredited to you. Paul is not just asking them. He's actually sharing the blessing. He's sharing the fruit. And he's confident in letting them know that their gifts both with Epaphroditus and the actual monetary gifts, that they are a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. But what Paul seeks for them is he seeks the fruit that will increase to their credit. Your generosity, our generosity together, it is having kingdom impact. And I want you to know, friends, that you guys are a part of a church that is generous. This isn't to toot our own horn, but we have been partners with Zoe International for more than a decade, and legitimately thousands of children have been rescued out of trafficking. Thousands of people who have come to know Jesus as their Lord and Savior in Thailand. We've been partners with Touch Nepal, where hundreds of children have been taken care of in an orphan home. We've been seeing local pastors in remote area training in the Himalayas, that's Mount Everest area, uh, actually coming to know Jesus, being trained in the gospel, and being sent out to do missions work out there. We have been partners with helping plant more than 12 churches who faithfully preach the gospel. We have been a part of being here at the Boys and Girls Club where we are blessing this facility that helps reach the most impoverished in our area. All that I'm saying, and I'm getting fast and frantic, your generosity is having kingdom impact. And what Paul's telling us is that actually that's credited 
to like you. Like this is part of the fruit. Jesus says that you will know a tree by its fruit. And what Paul is saying is some of, there's going to be fruit on some of your trees because of the generosity in which you've participated in that maybe you didn't even know about. But we can trust and be confident that when we give unto the Lord that God will use those funds for his glory. Paul also reminds them, and worship team come up, that when you give, God will provide the things that you need. Again, people will wrongly do a prosperity gospel thing here where they'll say, hey, if you give God this much, he's going to give you three, four times that amount of money. That's nowhere in scripture, just to be really clear, if anybody's wondering. If you are struggling with funds, the secret is not to give me $100 and you will get 1000 That's not the process here. But Paul is confident he's baking on God's faithfulness throughout the ages to provide for his people and provide not just spiritually, but provide physically. And 